This is Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe. Now, here's Patrick McEnroe. All right, welcome everyone. Another edition of Holding Court. Patrick McEnroe here. Very pleased to welcome in a legend of tennis uh, with eight Grand Slam singles titles, 11 more times in a final and 94 career titles overall, the one and only Ivan Lendl. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. Uh, great to be with you. Um, great to have you on. And I've, since we were just wrapping up the, the French Open, obviously you were one of the great clay court players uh, ever, uh, but we witnessed yet again the greatest clay court player ever in Rafael Nadal. What did you make of his performance in just dismantling Novak Djokovic in the final, Ivan? I did not see the match live. I saw it in pieces, and uh, and a uh, few things uh, stuck out uh, right away from the beginning of the match. Uh, number one, Rafa was using his forehand down the line a bit more than he usually does. Uh, number two, his back and cross court was extremely aggressive. Rafa was looking to be aggressive and uh, not let Novak sit in the back end corner and distribute his back end. And the third thing, which was interesting. Uh, anytime Rafa was in big trouble, he would throw up a law, mm. back up, and get back into the point because Novak wasn't putting the overhead away. Yeah, I noticed that too, actually, that, that Nadal did that quite a bit uh, in that opening set against Diego Schwartzman, Ivan, in the quarters. Of course, Schwartzman, or excuse me, the semi, Schwartzman had beaten him um, in Rome coming in, and, and he played a lot of those high, almost like 12 and under lobs early. Do you think that was partly because of the heavier conditions this year that we all talked about coming in, that the balls were a little bit heavier and the court a little bit slower because of the time of year and the weather? Well, I don't really know why he was doing that with Schwartzman. Uh, Schwartzman, I think with Novak, it's part of the strategy because Novak's overhead is not his best shot. And you get a chance to back uh, Novak prefers to place it rather than hit it. Right. And uh, if you're as quick and defend as well as Rafa, you get back into the point. And uh, he, he was very successful with that. But uh, I don't know that I would call it 12 and under. Uh, I mean, <laughs> Tony Roach, I'm uh, exaggerating uh, a little Tony bit. Yeah, when Tony Rhodes started coaching me, uh, he, he would use that when we practiced, uh, mm-hmm. and the Australians all could lob so well, uh, not necessarily an offensive topspin lob, but a defensive high lob, which was bouncing close to the baseline. And they all could do that, and it's very difficult to put, a, put an overhead away uh, from behind the baseline. Yeah, I mean, I was I was talking maybe more about the when they're both at the baseline, the play from from Nadal that he was you know kind of hitting that high, heavy looping ball. But you know, when you look at how dominant Nadal has been, Ivan, I mean, obviously we saw him come up and you know dominate early in his career, playing more of a defensive style, which has become more offensive over the years. I think playing on faster courts has helped him, just as you know you you learned. A, a, pretty quickly had to play on hard court and, and grass as well to try to improve your game. But I think for Nadal, it's actually made him a better all-around clay court player later in his career. Would you agree? 100%. I think uh, anytime you come from one surface, and uh, Nadal came from clay, Schwarzman came from clay, I came from clay, and you learn how to play on, on other surfaces, there will be parts of matches and situations on clay courts, which will help you what you have with what you have learned on the other surface. 
All right, I want to ask you, since you mentioned that you grew up on clay, I want to get into a little bit of how you got started in playing tennis in, in what was then Czechoslovakia, obviously, and, and I know both your parents played. Your mom uh, was a really good player playing mostly, I think, in Czechoslovakia. But wh- how, w- how did you get started and why did you get started? Was it just because of your parents? It was basically because of my parents. Uh, uh, when uh, I was uh, little, my mom was still competing, so I was coming there to watch her practice, watch her play matches, ball boy the matches, and later on I would uh, be a lines person or an empire in uh, in uh, Czech championships and so on and so on. But uh, you go to the club, and uh, as soon as you cross the, uh, the gate, you become a child of the club mm-hmm. instead of certain people. And, uh, uh, you know, if you misbehave and somebody yells at you, you don't run to your parents and say, oh, they yelled at me or something. You hope they don't tell your parents so you don't get it the second time, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but uh, uh, once you're there, people take care of you. Uh, there was nothing else at the club and uh, just tennis, but they would say, hey, come on and play with us a little bit or do you want to return my serve later on? And uh, hey, we're going out for a run into the park, come and join us and so on and so on. And uh, I think that's a great way to grow up and uh, learn tennis because uh, I learned very early that even people who were good, I thought they didn't have much talent, but they worked really, really hard. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, that goes a long way. Now, I know um, you also, uh, when you were playing on the tour and you got to number one, I always would hear about your interest in hockey. You, you lived for a long time in Connecticut, so you were big part of the, what were then the Hartford Whalers, a hockey team there. Did you play other sports, and was hockey one of them as a kid, or was it mostly or all tennis? Patrick, I played a lot of street hockey with mm-hmm. kids in front of our building, and uh, uh, we never really had ice, so I attempted to freeze it a few times, but uh, we were not that good on skates. But running around with a frozen tennis ball and uh, playing hockey was a lot of fun in the winter. And what so, about? Yes, I played a little bit, a little bit of that. Uh, we played a little bit of soccer as a tennis uh, tennis group for conditioning. And uh, I played. Uh, my mother was a very good basketball player. She played first division, and uh, so I played a little bit of basketball with mm-hmm. them. As they got older, they started playing on the side, and they would bring me as a 12, 13 year old along with them. And uh, so I learned quite a bit. Played one game, uh, competitive game for our school, and. Uh, I realized the other kids uh, don't want to win as much as I do, so I never showed up again. So you, so that's that that that's how you could continued with tennis because you wanted it to be all about the, in in your control, basically. Well, not necessarily in my control, but uh, I resented uh, the fact that not everybody really cares about winning or losing. Mm-hmm. Now, um, you mentioned to me one time in one of our many conversations over the years about how much uh, or how difficult it was for you to get to be able to play, especially during the winter time. I think you said there were maybe one or two courts in the, in the town where you grew up. Can you, can you remind me and, and tell our listeners about what that was like and how often you could play and what you would have to do to be able to practice? I think this was sort of your mid-teenage years. Yeah, that uh, we had one indoor court for our club, but you had A team, you had B team, you had 18 and under team, uh, under team, and then you had 14 and under team. Well, at 14 and under, well, let me back up a little bit. By mid-October, the court would be too wet, too much uh, 
moisture coming from underground and mm-hmm. they would be unplayable. So that was our off-season. Right. We opened up the indoor court uh, November 15th. And, uh, you know, as 14 and under team, you were getting two to three hours a week. Well, that, that clearly wasn't enough for me. I didn't, uh, I didn't like that. But I figured out very quickly that uh, with the schedules they had, that there are times when people don't show up. Mm-hmm. And so what I would do is I would go straight from school over there at 2 o'clock Right. And uh, just do my homework there. And if somebody didn't show up, I would jump on the court. So that way I ended up playing two to three hours a day. So you were just show up with, and, and, and this was all on your own, like your mom or nobody said to do it. You just figured it out. No, just, just, yeah. just on my own. I, I hated it that I couldn't play. I, I loved playing. And uh, if uh, I had, I have done something bad and I got punished by parents, the punishment was you can't come to the tennis club for two days, three days, or bad grade in school or something like that. And that just drove me nuts. <laughs> yeah, well, now we see uh, where your competitiveness started very early. The other thing you told me, Yvonne, was that when, when you got a little bit older and you were obviously a really, really good junior in your country, that you, you realized at a certain time that you needed to, to get out, you know, and to, to be able to play more and to be able to train more. When did that happen? Uh, I saw that the first time I came to the Orange Bowl, I mm-hmm. was uh, 15 years old, and I was selected to go to play the Sunshine Cup, Orange Bowl, and two or three other events. So I spent two months in uh, South Florida, and there I was playing five hours a day. Right. I mean, we were playing matches, we were practicing. I stayed with a family. I think you knew them, the Cutler. Uh, in uh, Fort Lauderdale, uh-huh. and they belonged to a club, and I would go there at 8 o'clock in the evening, and uh, the British boys were there. Andrew Jarrett was there, the referee at Wimbledon, and oh, we wow. would play for a couple hours. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, so that was great for me, and then I came back, and uh, I had a mate in our club who was a year older than me, and we were fairly equal. I came back two months later, and he never won more than two games in a set ever again. Wow, and I realized right away that uh, what an opportunity that was, and that I need to grab it and use it. And what did you do from that point on? Like, what was he? What because obviously in those years in in Czechoslovakia, maybe not as many opportunities as you were hoping. What did you do to get more of those opportunities? Well, I, I couldn't do anything about that. That was really up to the federation to uh, decide who is going to go. But uh, if I have good results, I'm going to get to go again. And uh, mm. it happened three winters in a row. And by then I was 18 and, uh, you know, I started playing on the tour. And uh, immediately when uh, my ranking was high enough that I could go to America uh, to play the winter circuit, I, I just did because I knew that's good for me. All right, so let's 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 bounce forward now, Yvonne, to when you do start on the tour and you start winning winning titles. And uh, as I told you just before we came on to record this, I was actually in the middle of watching your. I, I think it was your first final in a major it was against Bjorn Borg um, at Roland Garros. You lost that in in five sets. But what were your memories of that? Your first final at uh, at the French Open. Well, I, I remember it was five sets, obviously, but uh, uh, it was never close five sets. I, I got beat 6 1 in the fifth, and the sets I won were uh, very tight, not necessarily score wise, but a lot of long games. And the sets I lost uh, were fairly routine for Bjorn. I mean, Bjorn was 
those days, Rafa, mm-hmm. he, he, he has won, that was the sixth French Open. Right. That, that was unheard of. I believe next one was three. Mm-hmm. So and I'm not even sure it was at that time. I know uh, Mark won three and I won three and Guga won three. But uh, I don't know if at that time anybody won three. And uh, so Bjorn was like today's Rafa. And uh, of course, Rafa winning 13 makes uh, Bjorn look ordinary. But b- believe me, he was not an ordinary player. And he was th- great. I, I, I've had this uh, conversation with a few people Borg against Rafa at the French Open final, you can decide the technology. You know, maybe it's a wood racket or with if, if Borg had grown up with the Babolat racket, for example. Uh, how do you see that match playing out? Well, I don't um, because it's really an unfair comparison uh, which where, whichever way you go. If you look at sports where you can measure like track and field mm-hmm. or, uh, or swimming, swimming, maybe. Yep. Yep. Yeah. The times from the 80s cannot compare to the times today. Right. Uh, however, I will say this if Rafa had to play with wooden racket with a small head, uh, I don't know how he would hit for it. <laughs> well, that's why I asked because it's fun just to obviously you're 100% yeah. right. It's just fun, I think, to speculate, to imagine what, you know, when I watch Borg play and people forget this. You know, first of all, he had a pretty big first serve, particularly at Wimbledon when he would go for it a bit more yes. with a wood racket. Yes. Uh, if you gave him a, a graphite racket uh, from early in his career, and he also kind of played, you know, the the hook forehand a lot more than people remember. You know, meaning lifting it straight up the way Rafa does, you know, to get that extra topspin. So I think it would be a lot closer than many people think. But uh, let me get back to you. Go ahead. I, I think that would be a long match, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it would be long. No, no doubt would, it'd be long. Yeah. It would be long. It would take a while. Yeah, but uh, since we're talking about Bjorn, uh, I think I would be wrong not to mention his backhand. Mm-hmm. He, he, had, he had a backhand which uh, not too many players had. Today's, today's players, whether it's Djokovic or Murray or Rafa, their backhand is kind of stiff-armed. Mm-hmm. Bjorn was rolling his wrist on the backhand. Right. And he could create incredible angles even on the run. Today's guys would have hard time doing that. But that's just the technique. All right. So when you, when you look at what you, the, the impact that you had, Yvonne, on the way the game is played today, I mean, you were known for obviously your, a big first serve, your big forehand. You were one of the first guys to really start to move around into the backhand corner to play the forehand a lot more often. And now that's basically a staple, you know, in men's tennis. Uh, and the other thing I want to ask you about is also uh, your, how you embrace fitness and, and why you did and when did that happen? I mean, obviously, as a kid, you just told us you, you played a lot. And you knew if you played more, you'd get better. But what about when you, you sort of decided, okay, I'm going to get into cycling, I'm going to get into the off-court fitness, I'm going to get into doing everything possible to be the best that you could be, which it seems like now we sort of take for granted with the top players in tennis. Well, um, in 1984, I was, uh, I was two or three in the world, and uh, I have been there for three, maybe even four years. And it would be your brother or Jimmy Connors, uh, number one. Right. Then I would be two or three. And I got sick of it. I, I just was mm-hmm. not happy with that. So I, I 
sat down and I thought about it. I said, what do I need to do? And uh, I went at it from two ends. Uh, number one, what can I do for fitness? Mm-hmm. And number two, how do I need to play these two guys to be more successful? Mm-hmm. And I came up with a plan and uh, then the fitness actually fell into that quite a bit uh, because uh, in order to play Jimmy Connors with the back end slice to his forehand, which I believe was the right way to play him, I had to get quicker and move better and be able to last longer because he was going to be the one moving me around with that. Mm-hmm. And uh, with your brother, I needed to get better second serve so he cannot attack me. I needed to take a mid-court ball a bit better and get to the net and so on and so on. So those were things to work on. And uh, with that, uh, I was flying one and I saw the movie Rocky. Right. And I looked at the fitness. And I said, I don't want to lose another tennis match in my life because the other guy was better than me. Mm-hmm. If, uh, if I'm going to be outplayed, I'm going to be outplayed. But I certainly don't want to lose because the other guy was better. And uh, so I went and worked harder. Well, obviously it paid off when you beat my brother in that, in that famous French Open final when he had you two sets down and a break. It's still the, it's still the match that, that hurts him probably more than any other because he was so close to winning that, that French Open, which he couldn't yeah. win. But, but, but tell me what was going on in your mindset because for two and a half sets, I mean, John played probably the perfect match for him on clay. I mean, you were overall a better clay court player throughout your career. Was it just that you were hanging in there and you knew that if you could stay out there longer, keep him out there longer, that you could turn it around? What happened in that third set? So, uh, first of all, I believe uh, that the break was not in the third set, but in the fourth set. I believe third set went on serve until I broke and uh, then held. Well, I know he was set. up 4 2 in one of the sets. That, well, you think that was a. I thought in it the, was in both. The, in the fourth. I think it was just in the fourth. I'll take your word for it over mine, okay? Yeah, well, (laughs) I'm I'm 99% sure. Okay, all right. Either way. (laughs) It's a long time ago. Let's let's settle on that. Yes. Uh, You know, in the third set, uh, well, first of all, John played amazing the first two sets, just like he did against me at Forest Hill and in Düsseldorf a couple weeks before the French Open. He, he went into the French Open beating me twice, two and three or four and two or whatever it was. Right. On clay court. Yeah, Dusseldorf. And, and, also, and the, for people who don't know, Yvonne, Dusseldorf, a pretty slow clay court, too. Yeah, it's not. Germany is always faster than mm-hmm. uh, French, but it's, it's a clay court, yeah. And um, so he played very attacking style and was taking the ball early and so on and so on. And... Uh, the first two sets looked like just those two matches. Mm-hmm. However, you know as well as anyone, it's very difficult to play precise for that long of a period of a time. Right. And if you hang in there, you may get a chance. And I got that chance. And uh, after the third set, it was a hot day. I thought conditioning may come into play, and uh, I was fortunate to win it. Now, how did that change? I mean, it's obvious from your record because you had never won a major and then all of a sudden you started racking them up, you know, including uh, the U.S. Open and, as you said, three French Opens and there are a couple Australians as well. What, it, was it just the confidence of knowing, okay, I finally did it? I mean, it was a little bit like how you helped Andy Murray, right, get over the hump and, and win the major. You, of course, won, won a lot more and, and stayed at number one a lot longer. But um, how important was that win in that what you were able to do the rest of your career? 
I may be wrong, but I never felt like it was the most important match of my career. Mm-hmm. Most people, and you mentioned it as well just now, believe that that turned everything around. I felt if I keep improving and uh, getting my opportunities that I'm going to win my fair share, win or lose the French Open. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, maybe I would have become more determined and uh, somehow managed to win more or maybe I would have won less. I don't know. We will never know. But uh, I never felt that that's one match I should be pointing at. Mm. No, I, I agree felt with actually that. The yeah. match Right. Go ahead. Yeah, I felt actually the match against your brother in the 1985 finals of the U.S. Open right. may have turned it around for me because it was a very similar situation where John has beaten me twice that summer quite easily and we get into the finals. He beat me in the finals the previous year and uh, he gets up 5-2, has a break point uh, for 6-2 set point. And I hit a back and pass down the line or something like that. And uh, I end up winning that set 7-6. And the next two sets, I felt I was in a zone. Of mm. course, you don't realize it at the time, but mm-hmm. I felt like I could do nothing wrong. I felt like I was floating above the court. And it has taught me in some ways how to get closer to that feeling and how to play at that. And from mm. then on, I started winning more majors. Yeah, and obviously your U.S. Open record was just uh, absolutely amazing, not, not just winning it, but getting to the finals uh, as many years in a row as you did. I want to I move into a little bit the, the, the great players now, Ivan, of this year, arguably the, maybe the three greatest ever, certainly in the Open year. If you look at their records, they are. I, I, I take... A little bit of that with a grain of salt, because I feel like in your era, I hear this from you, from from Connors, from my brother, obviously, I felt that you guys played every tournament. You know, the tournament titles were not as important as the majors, but maybe more important as they are now. So I don't get totally enamored with the total number of majors that these current players, I could, for my brother, for example, barely played the Australian until later in his career. But you coached Andy Murray. You helped him get over the hump in the big tournaments. Uh, and what was it like to be with someone who was that good, not quite at the level of the big three? And, and sort of how did, that, you know, how did that experience make you think about how good those three guys are and maybe who's the best or, you know, obviously there's still time to go with those players uh, playing at the highest level as we see, but what's your take on just them overall, the threesome and what, you know, if you were going up against them, who would be the most difficult for you to play? Well, I will start from the end of the question. The most difficult for me would be Rafa because Mm -hmm. as a kid, I never got to practice against left-handers. Uh, we had no left-handers at our club, so seeing left-handed serves just in the matches uh, made it very, very difficult. And uh, that, that's partially the reason why I hired Tony Roach in 1984 mm-hmm. when I decided to make changes, because mm-hmm. he was a lefty, and he was going to be able, I was going to see that serve every day at practice, and he was also going to be able to tell me what left-handers like and don't like. Mm-hmm. Because I remember Yaroslav Drobny, the great Czech player who won French Open and Wimbledon in the 50s. Right. Uh, 
he, he was always telling me, you know, they don't like it uh, on the edge court if you cut the return across them. Mm-hmm. If you go down the line, they expect that. If you cut it across them, they, they don't like it that much and so on. And so I learned a lot from Tony then what, uh, what to expect, what left-handers prefer to do and so on and so on. So that has helped me a little bit. But uh, at my time, at some point there, in top 10, I had five left-handers. I had uh, your brother, Jimmy Connors, Vilas, mm-hmm. Gomez, and Lecon. That, that was not a good situation yeah, that's for a lot me. Of, I a lot of, like a lot of talent. Yeah, a lot of talent from those players. A lot, so, of, yeah. a lot of left-handed talent. Yeah, yes. I didn't mind talent, but left-handed talent, right? Right. So, uh, but, uh, you know, the, these three guys... Uh, Obviously, the story is still being written with two of them at 20 and the one who is probably the best physically and youngest uh, at 17. Uh, we will see what happens in the future. It will be fascinating to watch, just like it will be interesting to watch if Tiger uh, wins another one or two majors to get close to Jack, to 17 and 18, if he's going to beat him. Uh, I, I love these things in sports, and mm-hmm. I feel very fortunate that it's happening in our time. But... Uh, if we go back when we played, uh, the magic number was 12, which was Roy Emerson, even mm-hmm. though you could say, okay, he won some as an amateur and the best guys didn't play. So that number could be questioned. Right. Then, uh, then you had uh, Labor, which we could say the same thing, but he would also have won his fair share if he played between 62 and 68. And uh, then you had Borg at 11. And so the magic number to me was 12. Then mm-hmm. Sampras gets to 14. Right. And it would have never. And I, I can't, I have not met yet a person who honestly could say he saw it being broken by three guys in the next two decades. I could have never imagined that. That was just impossible that it's going to happen. And it did. And uh, I, I'm just fascinated to watch it. I want to ask you about Pete Sampras because he uh, spent some time with you at your house in Connecticut when you used to train like an animal up there and go on the bike rides through the Connecticut uh, hills there. Uh, what was that like having a teenage Pete Sampras come to train with you? Of course, then you ended up playing against him in, in some big matches. He was so much younger than you. What do you remember about that? I remembered a lot of talent. And uh, my thought was, you know, if he, if he can figure out how to use this talent, he's going to be really good. Of course, I had no idea that he's going to win 14 majors. But uh, when I looked at Pete, the interesting thing was how athletic it was. Mm. he was. He may be the best athlete I ever played against. Wow. Your brother may uh-huh. have the best hands I ever right. played against. Right. Okay? I have never played against anybody or seen anybody who was so dangerous at the net with the ball around his shoelaces. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, Roger can't do it. Uh, Raptor couldn't do it, Edberg couldn't do it, and they were all great at the net and volley. Cash couldn't do it. Your brother could put a half body away with pace. Right. But uh, Pete Sampras may have been the best athlete I played against because I thought many times uh, I got him with this good topspin love and he would make two steps back, jump higher than I thought he would and put it away. Mm. And uh, uh, so, you know, it's so hard, Patrick, to to judge when you see somebody young where they're going to go because we really don't know what's in their heart. Mm. Uh, we, we know they have won on certain levels and we know they have won uh, the level below, but until they get into the crunch in the major finals, we really do not know what's in there. 
we have seen that um, in some to some extent uh, this year at the U.S. Open. Mm-hmm. I mean, we had the semifinalists, and uh, and uh, the question was, who is the favorite? What's right. going to happen? And uh, I was asked that question. I said, well, we have two. Uh, I have two points to make. We don't know what's going to happen because we have no record on to go on with uh, the guys' performance in this situation. They have not been in it, and the two guys who have been in the major final, Team and Medvedev had not been in this situation as favorite. Mm-hmm. And it's very different to go there against Roger or against Rafa or against somebody who is younger than you and you see it as your best chance. And th- those are two very different different situations. So uh, judging somebody young as speed was at my house uh, uh, in 1988, uh, you, you can't really tell how great they can be. You, know, you see the potential, but you don't know what's going to happen. And Sasha Zverev, who, of course, you coached for some time, and he, he was a guy who, uh, you know, one of those guys you're talking about. And where do you see him going? I don't really know. I think uh, he clearly has some weaknesses in his game. He needs to improve. And, uh, and uh, the other thing we don't know what's going to happen now is this generation going to take over in three, four years when uh, Roger, Rafa and Novak are done? Or are somebody younger going to come up there and just dominate? Mm-hmm. I'm looking at, at uh, the game and I'm watching players who play the game the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I kind of divide both sports, golf and tennis, uh, into green light, orange light and red light. Mm-hmm. Green light is Everybody goes for it because you have to. So, you know, in tennis, it's a mid-court ball. You go for it. In golf, it's a wedge in your hand to an open pin. You go for it. Right. Uh, red light is you have, uh, you're in bad situation. You need to get back into the court position or you have uh, four iron. You're short-sided with hazard on uh, by the pin. You don't go for it. You go to the middle of the green. And then orange light. And that, that's where the difference is. And that's when I coached Andy Murray. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what made the difference in the end that he was able to take advantage and we worked on it really hard of more orange light mm. because in the end and we saw that yesterday with Rafa in the end these guys are not going to wait for, for you to miss because they know at this level they're not going to win by waiting they're going to attack these orange lights and Rafa was great at it yesterday and when Andy got better at it, he, he started winning some majors and Olympics. All right. I've already kept you for 30 minutes, Ivan. I promised you 20 to 25. We could easily no, go on for no another, worries, another hour. But I want to ask you, I have to ask you about it because I could go on about all the matches you played, about your interest in golf. You became a great golfer. Your daughters both are excellent golfers. Uh, biking and your t- interest in cycling, but I, I do want, I, I promised myself I would ask you this because I asked Martina Navratilova uh, about this when she decided to leave Czechoslovakia, and I want to ask you what that was like for you to 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 leave your country to you know finally you know, even before you were going to become an, an American citizen, but what was that like and what was prompted you that this is something Yvonne Lendl had to do right in the middle of the prime of your career? Well, I never really left. Uh, Martina went to the U.S. uh, consulate or uh, whatever 
place in New York and she asked for political asylum. Right. I never did. Mm-hmm. I just asked for citizenship, but I never denounced my Czech citizenship. It was taken away from me, mm-hmm. but it's a little different situation. Uh, with Martina, they were giving her a lot of trouble. With me, I had a lot of freedom, uh, less trouble. I just uh, thought if, if you live in a country, you should become a citizen. I thought that was the right thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't even realize at that point that they're going to take away my Czech citizenship. But uh, uh, it took me about four years to be able to get it back after everything settled down over there. <laughs> right. And, right. Uh, and it was one of the most complicated paperwork things uh, uh, I have ever done. And if I didn't have, have help over there with some attorneys who, who moved in it daily, I would never be able to fill it up myself. It was so complicated. And but, you know, you, you just have to... I, I always believe that if you're going to play your best tennis, you have to feel good where you are. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you hate certain country and there is a major plate in it, uh, you're not going to do so well. I absolutely hated being at Wimbledon because we, we would stay in a hotel downtown and da 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 mm-hmm. Then, in 1986, I started staying... No, I'm sorry. In 1984, I started staying at Wimbledon. In the, in the village and there, all right? all of a yeah. sudden, in the village, all of a sudden, things changed dramatically. Started raining. I was second match on. I could go back, take a nap, watch television. I didn't have to sit in the locker room. Uh, got rid of two hours of commute time every day. Uh, during the practice week, it was much easier to go and take a nap between practices and so on and so on. And all of a sudden, I started liking Wimbledon and I started playing much better. And you obviously got so, to two. You, 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 I want to ask you about that before I let you go. You you got to two finals there. You obviously sacrificed yes. a lot, including, in my opinion, a couple of French Open titles, um, which is another thing people don't talk about that much. Um, so when you look at how the surface has changed, right, where basically Djokovic and Rafa can basically play their essentially their same kind of game, obviously with a little bit of difference uh, on grass that they can on other surfaces. You, on the other hand, because of the nature of the grass and, and the guys you were going up against, my brother, obviously Connors, Cash, who beat you in a final, um, you had to deal with you know, basically trying to serve and volley a lot more. So when you look at it now and say, you know, I could have kind of played my own type of game, um, do you sometimes well, uh, get a little pissed off that they didn't change the surface a little bit earlier? Uh, no, I never get pissed off about that. Uh, it is what it is. And um, when we played, it was a different strain of grass. Right. I was taken back when I started working with Andy Murray, how slow the grass was. Mm-hmm. I couldn't believe it. And uh, I did see it on television, but until I saw it in person, I could not believe it. And uh, a lot of the guys talk about actually that grass when they come from the French Open uh, being slower than the French Open mm-hmm. than the clay and uh, I, I, I thought to myself there's a bunch of BS and then I really saw it with my own eyes and I realized they're correct uh, but you know it, it, it is what it is you have to play with uh, what conditions you're being given and uh, you could say Borg uh, may have won more Wimbledon uh, than mm. he really did because uh, I mean dealing it I, I don't like doing that. All right, last question. What's your handicap now? It's 
suck. I'm uh, 3.0. <laughs> All right, well, I'm consider- 3.0 and can't get it any lower right now. I, I like distance. I, I'm, uh, I, I actually, about uh, three months ago, I sat down and uh, I said, what do I need? Just like with the tennis, I sat mm-hmm. down and I said, what do I need to do to, uh, to get better? And uh, because in the club championships, I got beat by a guy who was out driving me by 100 yards. Mm. And talking about being pissed off, I was pissed off. <laughs> still, and right. So I, I still am. So uh, I decided uh, I need to get longer. So I have been calling friends of mine and, uh, and uh, golf fitness people and so on and uh, trying to pick up more club head speed using uh, speed sticks, uh, over speed training and so on and so on. Have a couple appointments down in Florida with the guys who try to help me and uh, I'm just trying to pick up this stuff. That, that, that scrawny teenager from Czechoslovakia with that intense competitiveness is still there through and through, isn't it? And, and by the way, well, Yvonne... He's, uh, he's not scrawny anymore. <laughs> and you know who's into golf? If, if we, you know who's into... You know, on the... Go ahead. You know, Patrick, if we're on the ice, uh, ice playing hockey, you don't want to be between me and the board. <laughs> yeah, because I'm sure you wouldn't mind checking someone. Now, you know who's into golf now? Uh, is, is your old rival, my brother, Johnny Mack, gotten into golf the big time in the last few years which he which he was never like so i would be like to be a fly on the i'll be your guys's caddy if i could just drive around <laughs> with lendl and johnny mack playing a round of 18 now that would be interesting should i should i say that i knew that long time ago that golf is great and your brother has just gotten smarter <laughs> that that's the way to end it yvonne thank you so much i appreciate you doing this and uh you're a class act my friend just enjoyed it very much, Patrick. Great okay. talking to you Great. and be well. You too. All the best. Yvonne Lendl, everyone, on Holding Court. Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media. Mudhouse Media.